Amen. That was awesome. Man, Paul, I remember uh, your first Sunday back here, and you were sitting right back there. And he's kind of selling short, like how serious. I mean, it was so serious, and the recovery was difficult. But the first Sunday he was here worshiping, sat right back there. And I remember, I think it was Christy and your sister, right, literally holding him up so he could stand while he worshiped. And, man, it's awesome. And, dude, I just wish you were a more positive person, you know, and had, you know, maybe a better outlook on it. But, you know, it's awesome to see someone who is willing to, uh, to give so much credit and so much glory to God after coming through something that was so incredibly difficult. And it doesn't always go that way, does it? Like we see people in this life, uh, and, and for whatever reason, you know, life deals them a hand that is, that is difficult, uh, and there's a struggle, and there's pain, you know, physical, or emotional, or otherwise. And, and sometimes people go the other way, don't they? Sometimes people run from God and turn from Him, or blame, blame God, or get angry. So it is so awesome to see see in this life when someone is willing to stand before a big group of people like this and say, you know what, no matter what happens, you know, his love has never failed me. And he has stayed the same throughout all of this, and all the credit and all the honor and all the glory goes to him. Now, if I'm going to be really honest with you, I struggle sometimes in my life with uh, how difficult it is sometimes to not want the, the credit, the glory, the spotlight on myself, all right? And, and, and I'm kind of wired this way where I really want the credit, you know, like, like it'd be hard for me not to be like, and, and I worked so hard to get through this, and, and no doubt Paul worked super hard, you know. I know that the pain was so intense for him at times, and he had to really just grit his teeth and get through it. Um, and there are certain times in my life when I'm like, you know what, I, I, at least let me tell you a little bit about what I did in the middle of all this. Um, and, and I struggle with that, that, that feeling when someone... What, someone else ends up getting the credit for something I feel like I deserve. Raise your hand if you have ever felt like in this life, if, you, if we could just be honest for a minute, raise your hand if you've ever felt like someone else got credit for something you did or something you deserved. Raise your hand if, that, if you've ever felt that way before. Alright, like, like all of us, right? We've all been there before. I actually put up a question on Facebook and I did a Twitter poll this week and stuff like that just to find out if I'm the only one like that that struggles sometimes when, when other people get the credit that, that I feel like I deserve. And it turns out I'm not the only one out there. I put this poll up on Twitter and only 5% of the people that responded, 20-something people that responded on Twitter said that they've never felt like that before. I think I figured out it was literally one person said they've never had that happen before um, and, and they're uh, three years old, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. <laughs> With a Twitter? What? I don't. Anyways, but then I also posted it on Facebook and, and asked for story, you know, share with me a time in your life when, when you feel like someone else got the credit you deserved uh, and how did that make you feel? And some people responded publicly, but most people sent me private messages because I think we know inherently that we're not supposed to feel that way, right? We're not supposed to uh, be upset when, when other people get the credit. We're supposed to be bigger than that or rise above or whatever, you know what I'm saying? But I started getting this flood of direct messages, private messages on Facebook um, where a lot of people were calling out their bosses, you know, uh, their co-workers, classmates who, who, you know, you did all the work on a project and yet they stood up uh, with the presentation and acted like they had contributed just as much. So we all are familiar with that feeling, right? Of, of feeling, you know, that tension with what I think is really our inherent nature, you know, our, and, and call it sin if you want to, that we're born into, where we desire the credit, the spot.
spotlight. In, in the words of the famous uh, the theologian and thinker Michael Scott from The Office, we want all of the credit and none of the blame, right? Um, there are times in life where we just struggle with knowing we shouldn't feel that way, but, but we all do from time to time. We want the credit. We want, Bill, Bill gave an illustration like this one time. I loved it where he said, we all know we're, we're wired that way because whenever you're driving and you let someone over and you don't get at least like, like a little wave or a head nod, I'm the same way. I go, where's the wave, bro? Come on. Can I at least like, and this, and when you get it, you're like, no problem. You know what? Yeah, I'm a good person. That's why I let you over. So you're welcome. <laughs> See that Lord? I love you because I let that person over. Now speed up! No, I'm just kidding. You're just going too slow. Um, you know, we're, we're constantly struggling with this tension, which is our nature, this desire for the spotlight, the credit, the glory, if you want to call it that. And what I believe is really God's will and desire for our lives, and that's to constantly be shifting the spotlights, you know, to others, you know, to, to help lift them up, but more importantly, taking the spotlight that, that sometimes we want in our lives and shifting it and turning it towards the one who truly deserves it, and that's Jesus. The Bible uh, illustrates this so well. There's a passage we're going to look at quickly this morning. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, there's a passage that illustrates this principle so well for us in John chapter 3. And while you're turning there uh, in your Bibles, so far in the book of John, it's, it's early on here in chapter 3, but what we've seen so far in chapter 1, it starts with that incredible passage of, of the Word becoming flesh, you know, of Jesus becoming one of us in order to, to save all of us. And then you have uh, the next part of chapter 1 where it talks about this guy, John the Baptist, who, who we're going to talk about this morning, and him preparing the way. He's an announcing Jesus, preparing people for the arrival of Messiah. Then you have Jesus' arrival on the scene, and Jesus begins to attract a following, and, and he begins to attract some disciples, some, some men that would ultimately follow follow him for years. Uh, Jesus performs his first miracle there in John chapter 2. He turn, changes water to wine at the, the wedding there. Then, then you have this scene where he quote-unquote clears the temple, which is basically where Jesus gets a whip and just starts whipping animals and people and drives them out because, uh, you know, the temple had become this place that was more about industry than ministry. It was more about, you know, money changing than, than changing lives. And it was a, a marketplace instead of a place of prayer. And so Jesus drives people out of the temple. Then you have at the beginning of chapter 3 that that famous meeting with the Pharisee Nicodemus in the night where we have probably the most well-known Bible verse of all time, uh, John chapter 3, verse 16, you know, for God so loved the world and all. But that's not where we're going today. We're going to pick up uh, there in uh, chapter 3, uh, and we're going to start reading in verse 22. But what's happening here is there's a really interesting dynamic at play in the book of John, because if the book of John were a movie, it would open up with this scene, and, and the first person we might see wouldn't necessarily be Jesus. It would be this guy, John the Baptist, or maybe a better translation of of how we say his name is John the Baptizer, a guy that, that was this wild desert preacher who, who was preaching about repentance and the, the coming Messiah and the kingdom of God and, and crowds and crowds of people were coming to him and, and being baptized to symbolize you know, people's repentance and their changed lives as they prepared for the arrival of, of God's chosen one on the scene. But it quickly shifts. And what happens is you have John the Baptist who's sort of this prominent figure right there at the beginning of the book of John and then he begins to fade out of the spotlight as Jesus begins to rise in influence and fame, and the platform of Jesus begins to grow, okay? And that's where we pick up. Read with me, starting in verse 22 of John chapter 3. It says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Ainon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. 
for John had not yet been put in prison. So basically, Jesus and John are doing the same thing, right? They're both baptizing, they're both preaching. Verse 25 says this, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, speaking of Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, here's a key line, and all are going to him. So basically they're coming to John and they're saying, hey, whoa, dude, heads up, just so you know, Jesus is stealing all of your crowd. Your influence, your fame, it's going away. And this other guy whom you paved the way for, he's taking it all. And I love John's response. Verse 27, look what he says. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must, what's the word there? Decrease. Man, this is so powerful. Before we go any further, would you pray with me? God, I just want to pause and ask you as we dive into your word here that you would uh, bless these next few moments. God, speak to us in a way that only you can. The reason we open the Bible every Sunday morning is because we believe it is your word. We believe you are speaking to us through it. So in these next few moments, may I decrease. And God, may you in our hearts and in our lives increase and increase. May you be more famous, more glorious when we leave here than you were when we walked in. We pray this all in the good, good name of Jesus and everyone says, amen. All right, so this passage is a powerful reminder to me that when it comes to the spotlight, when it comes to credit or glory uh, in this life, I need to stop and remember three things, three things I want to share with you this morning. And that's this, I need to remember what I've got, who I'm not, and my rightful spot. Yeah, I made it rhyme because I'm awesome, right? So I need to remember what I've got, who I'm not, and I need to remember my rightful spot. The first thing I need to remember is what I've got. Look back there at verse 27. Don't close your Bibles. Keep those open. Look at them. Look at verse 27. These guys come to, to John and they're saying, hey, hey, Jesus is stealing your spotlight. He's taking your credit. He's getting the glory. The, his platform is increasing. His influence is on the rise. And John, you better look out because it looks like yours is on the wane. And he says this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Man, church, we have to remember in this life, everything we have, tangible or intangible, and everything in between, it's not really ours. It's a gift from God. If you start thinking about your life and everything that you think you have, all right, everything you have comes from a generous and providential God. And I love that story, like Paul saying that there just happened to be a neurosurgeon here in this area who had performed, performed that surgery before. Man, that's, that's not an odd thing. That's a, that's a God thing, right? Man, that's not a coincidence. That's just, that's just, that's providence, isn't it? You know, everything we have in this life, it comes from a gener generous and providential God. And again, in John's case, people were coming to him and saying, look out, look out, you're losing your fame, you're losing your influence, you're losing your platform. And I love John's response because he's basically saying, it was never mine to begin with. It was never mine to begin with. God gave it to me. It's his. He can do with it what he chooses. 
If God wants to increase my influence, increase my platform, my popularity, my fame, may he do so. If he wants to decrease it, may he also do that. Because it was always his. It was never mine to begin with. I love that. In my life, I've got to constantly remember that what I've got, everything I have, tangible or intangible, it's not mine. Just like John said, I cannot receive even one thing in this life unless it is given to me by God. Man, I was thinking about what in my life do I feel like I have the most claim to? What is, what is mine beyond a shadow of a doubt? And I was thinking that maybe the thing that I have the most right to claim as mine in this life uh, is, is something I, I've literally made, and that's my children, right? Like, no one else can, can claim that, that they are Grayson and Boston's dad. Like, that's mine. My fatherhood is mine, right? But Trish and I talk about this all the time, and, and, and our parents have talked about this too. We have to remember, even the thing I feel like I have the most rightful claim to in my life, my children, they're not really mine. They're not really mine. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but sometimes, like, we'll be hanging out with my parents, and my mom gets this just kind of glassy-eyed look, and I can tell, you know, that the, all the, the dam is about to burst, you know, all the water's behind there. She's just looking at me. I'm like, what? And she's like, I always knew that you were mine just for a season. <laughs> and now you're gone. You know, and I say that happens sometimes. That happens all the time, like all the time. Like every time I see her, she's like, hey. <laughs> And then she looks at Trisha like, how dare you steal my son, you know? But even that, and, 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 but I appreciate, I appreciate that truth that she's spoken into my life, our, that our parents have spoken in this, this truth that we've come to realize is that our children, man, they're only ours for a season. God, God gives them to us. And when it comes to my fatherhood, when it comes to parenting, it's not about ownership, man, it's about stewardship. It's not about ownership, it's about stewardship. When it comes to my children, but when it comes to everything that good, good that God has given me in this life. And hey, by the way, you can, you can tweet that because that's really good, right? Like it's not about ownership. It's about stewardship. When it comes to the things in this life that God has given us. And we have to be faithful. Faithful in stewardship to the one who gave it to us all in the first place. Hey, the second thing we need to remember that I need to remember, I need to remember what I've got, more importantly, who gave it to me, and what I need to do with it, but I also need to remember who I'm not. Back to the Bible in verse 28 there, John says, you yourselves bear me witness. In other words, you heard me say this before, I am not the Christ. The word Christ means chosen one, anointed one. He says, I'm not the one. I am not the one, but I have been sent before him. And I love John's humility here. He wants to be extremely clear. I am not him. I am not the one. This is not my role. This is not my purpose. And we know this wasn't just a false humility, you know, because sometimes, you know, we get a sense in life that sometimes people have this false humility. You know what I'm saying? Where, like, they may, you know, say, like, uh, interviews with, like, athletes or musicians. You know, they give their acceptance speeches. And they're like, first and foremost, I want to give all glory to God. And I'm like, really? Because I listened to your album. Did you just now start doing that? Like, giving glory to God? Okay, cool. You know, we get a sense sometimes that sometimes people have this false humility. But if we look back in chapter 1, this is the same guy, John the Baptist, who said about Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. John's view of Jesus was so high above himself that he wasn't about to let people confuse him with the Messiah. But it could have gone another way, right? John could have at least just let people think what they wanted to think. You know, he could have let them be like, well, 
you know, I, I don't know. Maybe we'll see how it all plays out. He could, he could have let, maybe let them assume that maybe he was the Christ and just not say one way or the other to, to get a little of the credit or keep a little of the spotlight on him at least for a little while longer or at very least not lose what platform and popularity he already had, but he didn't. He didn't do that. In light of who Jesus was, he remembered who he was. More importantly, he remembered who he was not. And years ago, I read a book, and it's one of my favorite titles of a book of all time. It's by this guy named Louis Giglio, and the title was this, I am not, but I know I am. Turn to the person next to you and say, I am not, but I know I am. Do it right now. Go. Hopefully you get that, right? Hopefully you understand, like, the pun there, right? Because what happens, and what this book talks about is that God's name, as he revealed it to Moses in the Old Testament, is... I am, right? You remember when, when, when the, the bush was on fire, but it didn't burn up, and Moses, instead of being freaked out like any one of us should be these days, by the way, if foliage starts talking to you, run. Okay, I'm just saying, or maybe stick around, because, you know, take your shoes off. That's what you do when burning vegetables talk to you, right? But uh, this bush is talking to him, and it's God speaking out of it, God speaking to Moses, and he reveals to him, you know, Moses says, well, who, who should I say sent, uh, sent me to the nation of Israel when, when you called me to, to go and deliver them from Egypt? Who should I say sent me? What's your name? And God says, I am. God says, my name is I am. Which, by the way, if God's name is I am, that makes all the rest of us I am not. Right? And that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> Hi, nice to meet you. What's your name? Well, I am is already taken, so I guess I'm I am not, you know. If you start thinking about it, all the things that God is, we are not, right? Holy, perfect, infinite, uh, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful. You know, he's all these things. He is I am. So that makes all the rest of us I am not. And that sounds like a little bit of a bummer, but the truth is, man, in this simple idea that, that God is I am and that makes us I am not, that's a, there's a lot of freedom. There's a lot of freedom in that. In the book, and I have this quote up for you on the screen here, uh, the author says it like this. Admitting we are not God, not in control, not running anything, not responsible for everyone's well-being, not the solution for everything and everyone, not at the center of all things, doesn't belittle us, it frees us. And I wholeheartedly believe that. That when I remember who I'm not... There's freedom in that. Because if I remember who I'm not, then it frees me up to not try to be who, I, who I'm not. You know, I don't have to be or try to be who he is in my life. I can remember who I'm not. And taking that spotlight and turning it onto I am, man, it doesn't belittle me. It frees me. There's freedom. There's incredible freedom in remembering what I've got, who I'm not, and finally, remembering my rightful spot. Look back to the Bible one more time here. Verse 29. John says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And a few weeks ago, I got to do a wedding here at Hickory Grove. It's the first one I've ever done in the church here. I've done some weddings since I've been on staff here, but this is the first one I've ever done in this room right here. And at the rehearsal on Friday night before the wedding, we were up here on the stage, and, and, and Miss Diane, that's what my son called Diane Cook, our, our uh, administrator, uh, one of my, and you guys don't get to see her very much because she attends another church on Sunday morning, but if you ever have a chance to stop here during the day and visit her right down the hall in this building, she is awesome, and she keeps so many things running and moving along here, and she really 
real, I don't know her favorite snack, so I'll just say she likes cash, you know, bring, uh, bring her some uh, cash basket or something, I don't know, whatever. Show your appreciation to her. Just send her an email, actually. She would really appreciate that. But she and I were up here, and she's such a pro at weddings, and she was helping us stage and get set up here where the bride stands, where the groom stands, all the bridesmaids, all the groomsmen, and she's such a pro. She's got this little roll of tape, and she'll mark out the different spots where each person is supposed to stand. So we're up here on the stage, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you. I was standing, like, right here, okay, and then the bride was right here, the groom was over here, and then lined up from them were all the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, right? How weird would it have been during the actual wedding ceremony if, like, the best man had walked down the aisle and walked and stood right in the groom's spot? What would he be trying to do there? You know, looking at the bride like, hey, just forget about that guy. It's me, all right? No, or even, even worse, what if the maid of honor had stepped right into the bride's spot, right? Awkward. You know, that would have been weird. I, as a minister, I don't know what, how I would have reacted. I guess like a stiff arm, maybe, just to put them in the right spot. But that would be strange, right? To see uh, someone in, in a wedding like that try to step into a role that, that is not theirs. To stand in a spot that is not theirs. Alright? In that moment, in a wedding, everyone should know their rightful spot. They should know their tape mark. They should know exactly where they're supposed to stand. And in the best case, I think the best man, the maid of honor, uh, all the bridesmaids, all the groomsmen, they should stand in their spots and they should look toward the bride and the groom and they, that should be a moment of joy, right? They should be happy for their friends, looking on, excited. That's exactly what John is talking about here. He says, I am simply a friend of the groom. I'm happy to stand in my spot. And I'm not just happy. He uses this phrase. He says, my joy is complete. In other words, he's saying, I am perfectly happy to stand to the side and see the groom as he prepares to claim his bride. Speaking of Jesus. And what about you? Does it give you joy in your life when you're able to step to the side and say that, in this accomplishment, this achievement, this comeback, this victory, this win, whatever it is, does it give you joy to step back to the side and truly and authentically say, in this, all the glory goes to God? Does that give you joy or is there tension? Is there tension? Do you struggle with that? And I'm not just talking about one part of your life. I'm talking about your whole life, every single area, marriage, parenting, work, dating, school, everything. Does it give you true joy, complete joy to stand in your rightful spot to the side and say, hey, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's all about the one who gave me all this in the first place. It's all about the one who is, and I know I am not. It's all about him. 2,000 years ago, a wild desert preacher described what the Christian life is supposed to look like in such a compelling way. I don't think we can even do much better than it today. When it comes to our relationship with God, through Jesus, our following him in every area of our lives, every single day, our living, breathing, everything we are response to him, he must increase. But I, and you, and all of us must decrease more and more and more in my life, every single day. God, more of you and less of me. Until naturally, without effort or having to remind myself, it's Jesus who becomes the star on my life stage. 
It's him who stands center stage in the spotlight. And everything I do and say, everything I am points to him. So a simple question to close today. Who or what is standing center stage in your life? When it comes to the spotlight, who's going to get it? And some of us, and I'm talking to myself right here, need to take a good hard look at our lives and ask ourselves, who's getting the credit? Who's getting the credit truly in our lives? Who's getting the glory? Whose influence, platform, fame, or popularity is increasing? Mine or Jesus? Let me say it this way instead. Could you imagine how many people around you might be impacted if you cared more about what people thought of Jesus than what they thought about you? Let me say that one more time. What would it be like if you stopped caring more about what people thought of you and more about what people uh, thought of Jesus? I mean, your reputation matters, but as a Christian, you also represent and help create a reputation to the people around you of the one whom you claim to follow. How awesome was that part of the story we just heard where people are just watching Facebook comments, you know, and prayers being lifted digitally online. And someone who was burned by a church decades ago because of the, the, the fact that people are giving glory to God, giving credit to God, praying to him and lifting him up, worshiping him, elevating him online, steps back into that arena and brings his family with him. That's awesome. That's, that, that's the best sermon you're going to hear this morning right there, that testimony, all right? Seeing God at work in that way. And it happens when we remember what we've got, who we're not, and our rightful spot. When we embrace wholeheartedly in our lives the truth that he must increase. But we, we must decrease. And in doing so, make our own joy complete.